Hey, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 2, which is, you know, if if you're familiar with church stuff and Christmas stuff, you know Luke 2 is one of the, yeah, the central passages for the Christmas story. I just want to read part of that. Christmas Eve, if you can come come to that service, that is, when we say 5 to 6, we want you to know we do, we start at 5, we end at 6, because we know there are a lot of family things going on, but... That is such a simply beautiful service, just reading the, reading the story, singing songs, and then having a brief thought before we all go into our celebrations. It is a great service to invite people to because there just seems something easy about Christmas Eve. So, And here's one of the, verse, here's one of the passages. I want to start in verse 8 where you, the beginning of the chapter, you've got Mary and Joseph coming, Jesus is born, and in verse 8 is when we get to the shepherds. So I want to start there. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Well, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now, you know how sometimes, maybe at your job, it's especially true early on in your marriage. Yeah, Will and Alexis, Max and Soph, where you're having this conversation and you, you understand what's being said, but all of a sudden you realize there's something being said behind what's being said. And you're trying to pick up on what is being said behind what's being said. Because we're, we're very familiar with this, this part of the story, the shepherds out on the field, and they, the angel comes to them. But God is making a huge statement behind the scenes of this that, that kind of gets, that, that gets uh, brought out. And part of that is what I want to wrap, wrap up today. I started last week and I mentioned I was with some pastor friends and, and one of the guys just mentioned just how unique Christianity is, that we're the only approach to God where God has come for us instead of all these other religions and pseudo-Christianity where people are trying to work their way up to God. The, the outrageous part of Christianity is that God has stepped aside and come for us. He's come, and we sang that in several songs. You know, when you found me, I was so blind. Uh, you rescued my soul. We sang that a couple of times. You came to my rescue. All of those things, those are part of the gospel, and they're part of the outrageous gospel we're used to, but it's just so, it's so incredibly outrageous. When you think of the Christmas story, I was thinking the other day that it's like there's, there's two dark threads that run through the Christmas story. The, the first dark thread is over in Matthew with the reign of King Herod, one of the most evil kings that's reigned. And Herod, who is so paranoid, he kills people in his family, he kills political enemies. 
and he wants to kill Jesus when he hears that there's another king that's been born. And so, you know how that story goes. He just orders all the boys to and under in, that, in the region of Bethlehem. He orders them killed. So there's no, there's no competition. Faithful God, when there's an attack, he always knows about it, knows it's a plan. So he's already sent Jesus and Mary and Joseph to Egypt. I was sharing about this Wednesday night. From what I could read, they said probably with this, the population of Bethlehem in that time in the region, probably about 15 or 20 boys were killed in that, in that incredibly dark thread. The other dark thread that runs through this story isn't found so much in the verses we read. The other dark thread of the story is really you. It's really you. Because Jesus, he comes, he lives, and he dies this incredibly horrible death on the cross because of you and because of me. So it's not just this beautiful story of this baby that's born in this simplicity and simple, lovely story who lives a, a wonderful life helping people and reclaiming God's image and the way to God and, and then goes off to heaven to wait for us. It's, a, it's an incredibly horrible story of a God who humbled himself to come for us, who lived a life of rejection, who Isaiah says is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who is put to death in, in an incredibly painful way, in shame and in physical pain, and then is written off and through most of history is just kind of sidelined. That's the, that's the story that's behind the story. So where last week we looked at ourselves that we were living in darkness without knowledge of God and without a sense of God's presence and Jesus has come to bring us light. This, this week I want to look at this, at the coming of Jesus and kind of how it plays out with the shepherds in the sense that we, we had a lot of stuff between us and God that wasn't being taken care of and God has shown up to take care of all of our stuff so that we can have a relationship with him. That kind of plays out in, in this story. Without Jesus' coming, we wouldn't have a clue to who God was or what he, or if we don't know who he's like, what he or she or it might be like. We don't know anything about him. We don't know how to get there. That's why some of us that grew up in homes that weren't religious at all, we had to kind of make it up ourselves, what he was like and what I probably had to do to get to heaven if, or whatever heaven was like. We're making all of that up. Without Jesus' coming, we don't know that. Without Jesus coming, all that stuff stays between us. Without all that stuff, we have this conscience that's working in our heads that's telling us we're doing things wrong, but we're not really sure what to do with that. And we're wired differently, aren't we? Some of us are wired so that our conscience gets triggered over everything. We just live in perpetual guilt. Are you with me? How many of you, how many of you say, yeah, that's me. I have to talk myself out of being guilty on some things. I remember, I remember, I still, I think I mentioned this recently. It's not that I was such a good kid, but I, I was kind of a good kid. I remember stealing bubble gum from our corner store, store, boys market, and going back the next day and paying for it because I just felt so bad. And the cashier, you know, it was always, those little stores, it was always the same cashiers. They knew you. Just looked at me like, why have you done this? But it just really bothered me. It bothered me. I didn't, we were, go to church sometimes kind of a family and it just bothered me. I have had to learn not to feel guilty about things that I shouldn't feel guilty about. Others of you, you've had to develop your conscience a little bit. You know, you, you have lived maybe with this phrase, well, why should that bother me? Or what's wrong with that? So in fairness, can I get a witness on some of, some of you have to do that? Okay, all right, a couple of, a handful of you brave, and the rest of you are just liars. You don't feel guilty about... <laughs> And you don't feel guilty about it. That's the problem. 
So, so you got this conscience. Yeah, see, now you're with me. Yeah. I'm not giving you a second chance. So, so you have this conscience problems, and then you have these levels of, of what you've done with it, depending on what you've done. This, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. To, oh, am I in trouble? Oh, I'm in deep trouble. I am dead. I am so dead. And then in some of your relationships, you may be on one of the other side of this where it's like you're dead to them. Any of those relationships where the door's just shut and there's a lock on it, I'm just dead to them and where they go. That kind of plays out into your Christmas list, doesn't it? You have somebody who is at the bottom of your Christmas list. You don't want to buy a gift for them, but you kind of have to. They might be family, or they're going to show up, or they got you something last year, or maybe they got you something really bad last year, and that's why they worked their way to the bottom, or maybe they got you something, nothing, last year, and yet you still feel obligated, you've got to give them something. Or there's somebody that you just had a falling out with, but it was like two weeks ago, so you still have to give them a gift, although there's this stuff in the way. There's this stuff in the way. It's kind of where we are with God in in, in our relationship with him. You are born, in the innocence of your new birth, you're born with stuff in the way of you and God. You carry the sin nature that Adam has passed on to us, and then once you're able, you start sinning on your own, you start building up your own account of stuff that's between you and God. And all of that stuff really matters to God. You know, those of you that struggle with conscience, and we joke about it, but it really is true. There's some of you that have You've done the work of developing your conscience of, okay, I need to feel bad about this, especially in marriage, isn't it? When we're getting used to each other, it has to matter to me things that bother Cindy, even though they would never bother me. Boy, if I use that as a guide, it only should bother me if it would bother me. Wow, would we be in trouble? (laughs) So you do, you kind of learn what bothers you. I need, that needs to matter to me. I also need to avoid that. That bothers me. So we've got that kind of going between us and God as well. So you, you start reading through the word and early on you find out that when that stuff gets between us, it really matters to him. You know, Adam and Eve's sin, you're out of the garden. You're out of, this is where, this is where I am and, and you can't be here anymore. And not only you're out of the garden, I'm, I'm putting an angels there with swords to make sure you don't try to come back. From the very beginning, you learn that stuff matters to him. In relationships, we have this stuff, and in marriage, whatever your relationship is, where you figure, you know what, this really, this really doesn't matter. We can just, you know, let's just brush it aside because it really isn't significant. And some things, they aren't significant. You do need to brush them aside. But when one of you feels like, no, no, this is a big one to me, that just stays put until something gets done with it. And that's where all of this stuff between us and God is. It stays put until somebody does something about it. And so if you've got an active conscience, you're trying to do stuff about it with God. And you're trying to go to church or you're trying to just be a good person or you're just trying to negotiate with God or you're trying to make promises with him. All these things we do to try to be good enough and to try to let him know we, we want to deal with this stuff, you know, that's between him and us, that he's very aware of and, and that he, he talks about a lot. But uh, part of our problem is Hey, Chris, can you go to the next slide? It's not allowing me to. Yep. Thank you. Is that we've been walking away from God since the Garden of Eden. Since Adam and Eve were pushed out, our whole story is walking away from God as, as he reveals himself. 
he reveals himself this way or we walk away from him and saying, this is what I think God is like. When we say, this is what I think God is like and we're not going to what he says he's like, we're, we're walking away from him. We're repackaging him. Well, this is what I think you need to do to be good enough for heaven or well, I really think God is fair because he does this. All of those things are us walking away from the Garden of Eden or this is how God says life should be lived but I'm not so sure I agree with that. That's walking away from him and we, we spent a lot of our lives walking away from him. And this whole time God is saying about all those things is that they're wrong. It's all wrong. Those things we're, we're doing, he acknowledges these things are wrong. You need to stop doing them or these things we're trying to do to deal with the stuff in the middle. He says it's the wrong way to approach it. So he gives the law to Moses and the law with all of its sacrifices and all of its clean and its unclean. All that is is to show, I want you to see that there's nothing you can do on your side of the equation to deal with the stuff that's between us. You just have to call out to me so that I take care of it. That was the goal. So the, the other stuff, he's just saying it's all wrong. Some of these verses are familiar to you. He looks at the best you have to offer. Like it says, we've all become like one who's unclean in all of our righteous deeds. I mean, God does look at your life and he sees that there's good, you're doing good things. But all of those things on the scale of what he's looking for, they're like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, they just take us away. That's how he looks at the good things we do. And in another place in Romans, he just looks at all of humanity. He says, we've all sinned and we've come short of what he requires of us. Or it says in a few verses earlier in Romans 3, he's thinking through all of humanity, through all time, and, and he says, this is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. They've all turned aside and together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths, they, their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It's a section of Romans where, where the Apostle Paul is trying to just make a case that everyone is guilty before God. Good Jews, bad Jews. Good Gentiles, bad Gentiles. The whole world is guilty before God. And this is right at the end of that section where he's just pulling from all these Old Testament quotes that when God looks at all the humanity, he doesn't see anyone that's good or good enough. So, so we're, we're doing these things. We're trying to do our best. We've got the stuff in the middle that we can't deal with. It's, it's on our side it's, and nothing can happen to it. And then it's got this really scary implication where it says the wages of sin is death. That, that what God pays for that is eternal death apart from him, to, to, to be away from him. You know, all of this stuff is in our, the way between us and God. And, and we can't get through that. And, and like so many relationships, that relationship's not going anywhere until this stuff is done. You know, I, I remember so many conversations like you do where you're hoping to just kind of change the subject or trying to just move on, or it's been some time, and so you thought, let's just, let's just pretend this didn't happen. And you're just finding out on the other side of that relationship, the other person's not having any of that. You know, you get to a point of openness in your marriage that we've gotten to that point of openness in our marriage, which sometimes I'm thankful for, you know, where Cindy will say, wait a minute, you know, if you're trying to change the subject, we still need to talk about this. And, you know, 
Oh, change something on me. I, that's right. I, I wanted to come back to that with you. <laughs> you know that what that is, and that's I think it especially a guy thing more than a wife thing. I think women are more in tune with relationships and how they work, and we're very in tune with how they work. We just like them to work differently. <laughs> and so, but with God, He wants. He's not allowing that to be ignored. It just stays there. And so, some people's hearts they just get hardened. I don't really care then. Or some people, they just take that guilt upon themselves and it just piles up and piles up and overwhelms them or they give up. I remember hearing a missionary to Bangladesh say one time when suicide bombers were really just starting to get in the news and he said, you know, as someone administered among Muslims and radical Muslims, he said, if you thought you were going to face the, uh, the prospect of three trillion years, you know, in a, in a place like in the Muslim version of purgatory, but in one moment, you could be transported to paradise? That begins to calculate in your mind. You can wipe out three trillion years of paying for sin with one moment. You know, some people just give up. I'm, I'm never going to get there. It doesn't matter. And other people just come up with, with crazy ways or creative ways or some ways that seem to make sense. They're just not what God says about dealing with all this stuff that's in the way between us. It's all in the way that's between us. It's, it's all this stuff that's so offensive to God. It's not just we're doing things wrong. It's offensive to him. It's rebellion to him. It's rejecting him. When you choose to be selfish, you're choosing not to be like God and you're choosing not to honor him. When you're choosing to be proud, you're comparing yourself to him. That's why all of, all of our sins reflect on who he is and who he is to us. And that's why it's so offensive to him. That's why he can't just pass on it. He can't just pass on it because he's a just God and he has to do the right thing. He's a holy God and he cannot be in the presence of sin. He's got to do something to take care of it. So all these things, they just stay in the way between us. They're there. He definitely feels it. He not only sees it, but he feels it. In Romans 10, it quotes this Old Testament verse that says, but of all Israel, he says, or of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's how he looked at, at Old Testament Israel. All day long I'm holding my hands out to them. Like, will, will you come home now? Will you come home now? But they wouldn't. I'm just, at the end of the year, I've been reading through the Old Testament this year. I'm just, you know, so I'm pretty deep into the prophets. The prophets that over and over and over just say, is God's heart is saying, will you please come back? Will you please come back? I'm going to punish you, but then would you please come back? I'm going to punish you, but then I have good plans for you. All day long, I've held my hands out to, to these people. Or in Mark, when Jesus is here, and the Pharisees and the scribes who are so hung up on the clean and unclean of the Old Testament, they say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They give you a sense of, of where religion had gone at that point, what they had done with God's law. God wanted them to be clean. So the Pharisees took what God said and just kind of overdid it to make sure they got it right. So you had to not only wash your hands before you ate, which that makes sense, before you served God, before you touched clean things, they said you had to wash your hands and then hold them up and the water had to run down to your elbow and then off. You had to wash all the way to your elbow and off and the water had to run down because if you put your hands down, the water runs down. Now the water you've cleaned with have gone back and made your hands unclean. So it isn't that they say to Jesus, see, they say, why don't they walk according to the tra tradition of the elders? This is what the tradition of the elders said. You have to wash, and this is how you have to wash. 
And Jesus just says to them, man, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, or their hands, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Man, you've traded God's word and God's heart for your word and your, you know, your regulations. So you, you, you're going through motions and you're talking about me or singing songs about me, but your heart and what's important to you and how you're living, that is far from me. As a Jesus when he's here. So God is feeling this. He's feeling this stuff that's between us. Or in Jeremiah, at one point, in fact, a couple times in Jeremiah, God will come to him and say, therefore, don't pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer on their behalf. I won't, I won't listen when they call me in the time of their trouble. They've just got such a pile of stuff and they keep adding to it and they keep ignoring me when I try to deal with it that just stop praying for them. That's, that's not God's harshness. I'm trying to show you, that's God's heart. That's how much he's aware and how much he feels for all of that stuff that's between us and him and the things we did to add to it. Maybe the sin that you just kept running when you were on your run, however that was, whether you were living a, a good American selfish life and piling stuff on that pile or whether you were off the rails in, in sin, piling up on that stuff. Whatever it was, we just kept piling it up and piling it up. And, and it, mattered, it mattered to God. He knew it was there and it mattered to him. The whole time, this stuff is between us and God. And so all of a sudden, it's like that line in Night Before Christmas when what to my wondering eyes did appear but an angel. With all of this stuff between Israel and God, between every person on the planet and God, what shows up all of a sudden? An angel. It says in verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Out of their normal life, nobody expecting it, like Pastor Ted was sharing. Nobody's looking for the Messiah. Well, a few people were, but not, not the whole group. I remember reading Malachi one time and understanding why, why nobody got Jesus, you know, because there's all these questions in Malachi where God says, hey, why are you doing this? And everybody's, well, why? What's wrong with that? Their hearts were just so calloused and so hard. So here an angel of the Lord appeared to them. An angel of the Lord appearing to shepherds. Verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds. Shepherds in that time, many of you have heard this before, they were at the bottom of society. In fact, the rabbis taught that you couldn't buy milk or a baby goat from a, from a shepherd because most likely it was stolen. Just They were just considered thieves. Israel was all about being clean or unclean. The law talked about that. And shepherds, they were always with animals, and they always had their hands on animals. And and hands on each other, and so they were perpetually unclean. In fact, I think I read someone designated them just perpetually unclean, and so they were looked at that way. They weren't on anybody's Christmas list, really. They were totally, you didn't want them around. If you saw a shepherd, you looked in your house and made sure everything was still there. It was just kind of how they viewed them. And so here's the Christmas story, and so you have these beautiful opening verses of Luke 2 where Jesus is born. He's born in a manger where he shouldn't have been. He's born to this Mary and Joseph. And the angel of the Lord appears because it's time to deal with all of this stuff in the middle. And who does he appeal to, appear to? He appears to shepherds that are at the bottom. Remember we started out, we said, when you're making a statement behind the statement, 
God is making a statement behind the statement. His statement isn't just shepherds were out, they were the only ones awake in the middle of the night and we wanted to get the star effect and we wanted all of that, so we went to shepherds. It was, we want people, of, we want all of humanity to know that when we tell the bottom of the ladder, we're including all of the ladder. Do you see that where it says in verse 11, front to you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. He's born there for everyone. In, um, in verse 10, I think that's where I meant to go, it says, Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. If they had gone to the priests with this word, it would have somehow managed out, it was for all the people, but not you shepherds. But the fact that he goes to the shepherds makes sure everyone knows that all means all. See, some of your stories of coming to Jesus or some of you that are still trying to figure out whether you can come to Jesus, some of that wrestling is whether God really would accept you or whether you, have you done too much or have you alienated him or wherever that is. These are the places God puts in his word loud and clear so that you know he wants all. That's why he uses words like everyone and whosoever. And that's why he comes to shepherds. Because when he's ready to deal with this stuff that's in the middle, that's keeping everyone out of heaven, he wants everyone to know this is the plan for everyone. That's the uniqueness of Christianity, that God has come for us. He has come to take care of all this stuff, and he's come to take, to take care of, of everyone's stuff, not just good peoples and, and not just religious peoples. He's come to take care of, of everyone's stuff. Even though... The outrageous part of the gospel is even though we've spent all of our lives pushing him to the side or, or repackaging him, what we think ought to be like, or deciding what is fair, what's right, you know, when he says, this is what it means to follow me, this is what it means to, 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 be, my, uh, to be my child, we say, well, I don't think so. Even though we've done all of that, God has come for us. He's come to rescue us. He's come to save us. In spite of that, that's the outrageous part of the gospel that the God of heaven that created the universe, the holy God, one who's good without any slice of evil to him, has come for people that are the exact opposite of who he is. And he's come to take care of all that stuff. And he didn't come and give you a list of, here's 10 things you need to do to clear the way so that we can be all right. We do that in relationships, don't we? And sometimes we do that rightly. Listen, if you want things to be okay between us, here's the three things you need to do. And sometimes that's appropriate. God doesn't do that. He doesn't show. He says, listen, you cannot do anything to make it right with me. So I'm just going to take care of it myself. You just got to humble yourself on your side of the equation and accept what I've done. That's the outrageous part of the gospel. Yeah, that's a good gospel. That's the outrageous part. In, along, along that, it's not just that Jesus comes, he's born a, this baby. It's incredibly humbling for him. This is these verses out of Philippians 2, which is, kind of looks at the Christmas story from a theological point of view. It looks at Jesus, and the Philippians are, they're, it's, a, it's a healthy church. There's just a little bit of division going on in it. And so in chapter 2, he's pointing out, listen, you need to be like these people. He says, have this mind among yourselves. He's telling the church, think this way, which is yours in Jesus, who even though he was in the form of God. So before you get to Matthew, before you get to Luke, Jesus lives in heaven. Probably Revelation gives you the best sense of that. Just being in this beautiful place, magnificent place, being worshipped by angels. No sin, no need, perfect 
fellowship, perfect community, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's living in that without needing anything, without any sinners around hassling him. That's what he's living in. He's in the form of God. He, even though he was there, he didn't count quality with God a thing to be grasped. That this plan required him to become a human, and he didn't wrestle with, there's no way I'm giving up all this for them. He didn't consider being equal with God a thing to be grasped. You ever watch that show, Undercover Boss? That's always fascinating to watch those things. But when a boss agrees to go on that show, he's not wrestling with, listen, I'm not giving up my private jet. He knows he's got to give up his private jet, he or she. Or, listen, I'm not giving up my wardrobe or my breaks or my schedule or my meals or whatever that is. They know they've got to give that up, and so they do. Boy, multiply that by about a million, and you have Jesus not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. It wasn't like God had to hold him down and turn him into a baby. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, not just a human, but now a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I read that one time, and it dawned on me that Jesus was so used to living in this, being this brilliance, you know, almost for the first time, sees himself in a mirror as a human being, says, are you kidding me? This is what I look like now? (laughs) But we miss that. That's part of the steps of humiliation that he's taking, born in likeness of men, but as a servant. And being found in human form, he humbles himself beyond that to become obedient to the point of death, not just any death, but death on a cross. See, that's how committed God is to, to taking care of all of this stuff. It wasn't that, Jesus, we need you to go down there and die and do that. There's so much more involved in that. There's so much together with that, that he's come for us and he's come to take care of all of this stuff that's between us. Some of you, I just feel an impression from the Spirit, some of you, you know this story. You've, you've come to the place where you've put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. He's taking care of all of this stuff but you still live in the guilt of that stuff. And, and all that's been taken away, that's, that's going to be an application for you. You need to realize he's taking care of the stuff. He just wants you to live now in the freedom of its being gone. But all that stuff, that's, the, that's why it's so significant that a Savior is born. Of all the titles that the angel could have told the shepherds, that's the one he chooses. A Savior has been born because you need to be saved. You need to be rescued from paying the penalty for all of this stuff. You need to realize that it's there and there's nothing you can do about it. And so Jesus has come in this, in this miraculous way and now even more miraculously, he's died to pay for all of it. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. You know who appreciates the beauty of the gospel? You know who celebrates Christmas the best? is people who know they were guilty. It's people who know they had a lot of stuff that they couldn't do anything with. That's why in some of the conversations that I've had, you know who really gets the gospel and appreciates the beauty of the gospel? Are addicts. Because typically, if addicts are working through recovery, they've had to face where they were and how they lived. That's part of the steps. But it's also part of God's plan. If you really appreciate the gospel, you have to look at that stuff face on. We had a couple years ago... We had a, a couple nights where Dave Baker got together, some, some guys, some friends of his, and we had a couple nights of just questions, any open night, any question. And uh, 
So on a side note, I got to tell you one of the questions. Some of you know this story. This is just so good. It's also so helpful for you to know that some people that you're talking to Jesus about, they don't have a point of reference. We have generations now that have grown up without going to Sunday school. They don't know the Bible stories. And also, so just know that. So along the way, we're wrapping up the first night, and one of the guys says to Dave, uh, hey, so Dave, what about, what about the virgin birth? And uh, Dave says, what do you mean? And he says, you know, that, that, Mary was, yeah, that Jesus was born of Mary. And one of the other guys who has a large personality says, yeah, you know, Mary, she was a hooker before she had Jesus. <laughs> to give you a sense of how little background there was in that group. And fortunately, they all knew each other, so they could laugh. And so we're all laughing, and he's like, what? And Dave says, uh, wrong Mary. He says, really? And he says, yeah, there were two. He says, I didn't know that. And we said, yeah, it's kind of hard to get hooker and virgin birth. Kind of hard to get those <laughs> things together. But that night, I heard more questions that were the same question. You know what question I heard? Are you telling me that God can forgive me no matter what I've done? Are you telling me that Jesus has already paid for all of that? I can't tell you how many different ways that was asked. Same question. One guy, I remember, said, I broke my own moral code chasing these drugs. God can forgive me for that? And, you know, the spirits just give me these things to say. And one thing I said, Jesus said, it's finished. He didn't say over to you. So he's taking care of all of that stuff. And when you understand all of the stuff you've done, then you understand the gospel. Then you, then you can live your life of thanks. And I drove, I drove home that night just thanking God for this gospel. It's God, what a great gospel we have that I can tell these guys, and, and that's really the heart of Road to Recovery. These men and women, we can tell them, listen, Jesus Christ has taken care of all of that for you. So he can look at you as clean in a whole other way we use clean. He can look at you as new. He can rebuild your life. He can do all of these things. Why can he do that? Because he stepped down and has taken care of that. He humbled himself and dealt with all of this stuff. And that's why these songs will use words like rescue. You came to my rescue because without that, I am separated you from you forever. Interesting way, isn't it, how... Pastor Ted and I, were kind of lining up with each other. We never really talk about what are you sharing, what are you sharing, because we just keep seeing the Holy Spirit line these things up. That's where they are. It's, it's outrageous that God would do this for us. Have you had that time when somebody has called you, that you've, you've had a problem with a relationship, and somebody calls to try to make it right, and you're kind of embarrassed that they've called? Maybe, you know, maybe when you're younger, maybe as an adult, it's your grandmother that calls and say, oh, Graham, I didn't want you to know about this. Well, this isn't right. You need to make this right. You get somebody that you're just embarrassed that they stepped in and made it right. That's God. That's God. He stepped in to make it right. God, I thought I could handle this. Well, now you're telling me I, I can't handle it. I thought I could make up for this. No, there's really nothing you can do to make up for this. I didn't think it was that bad. Yeah, it's very bad. It's very bad. But I've taken care of it. That's the, that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus Christ, he is the bridge. He's the bridge that takes us from one place to the other. Yeah, the outrageous Christmas message is that we spent a life alienating God, and yet he came to save us. Remember, there's a, there's a video we show once in a while from Willow, Willow Creek about the process of sharing the gospel. It's, 
his pastor sharing the gospel with his friend over a period of seven years and just sharing how, how to be faithful in doing that. And so near the end of the video, the friend is going to be baptized. And so the night before his baptism, he says to the pastor, he says, so how does this whole thing work? You know, just, just tell, walk me through the logistics. And so they do. And he says, the pastor says to him, so there's one thing you've got to tell me, though, is how much you've sinned. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, there's just a little thing, the baptism, that the more you've sinned, the further down I've got to push you. They, get, they were getting baptized in a lake. He said, what? He said, yeah, I'm sorry, that's how it works. The more sin, the deeper. So he thinks for a minute, he says, put me way under. And so in the video, as you see, you see the baptism, all these people getting baptized, and you see this one guy, then he goes like that all the way down. Yeah, however much you would say, Jesus has taken care of it. I mean, that's the, that's the magnificence of the cross, that it's all on him, and now it is all gone. And that's the only place that it can be all gone. Because if you're here and if you're not giving your life to Jesus, what your, what your message to God is, is hang on, God, just give me a little more time and I'll take care of this stuff. And the message of the Bible is that stuff will stand there until you stand before God, and that will not be a good moment. So you can either have Jesus remove it, or you can pay for it. And, and here's this wonderful Christmas message that says, God says, no, I don't want that to happen, so I've sent my son. I'm allowing this world to go off the rails and putting up with it because of that verse Pastor Ted read, because he's not willing that anyone would perish, but that everyone would come... So Jesus didn't come back yesterday because there were people that were saved, being saved yesterday. He hasn't come back before 1124 because there were people that were saved, you know, as the sun traveled across Asia and Europe and, and the gospel was shared there. There are people that came to faith today and that's what God wants. And now it's our turn and here's our service and there's maybe some of you have not given your life to Jesus today who realizing that he's taken this for you. That's what the cross was all about. And all he asks for from you is everything, really. He just asks you for, to give him, his, give him your life and let him make you new and let him lead you and let him give you power to live a new life. That's the gospel. That's a good deal. That's a good deal. Let me give you some applications and then just pray. Step back and wonder at that. Those of us that have been saved a long time, we need to step back and wonder that the God of heaven would do this for us, that he, he really did come and rescue us. Whether you were a good kid, and I was afraid not to be good. I was afraid of my mom in a healthy way. I was just afraid because of that conscience and my concept of God. That's why I always say, you know, that I loved the idea of confession and Catholicism. I didn't love... It wasn't so much that. I just loved the possibility that I could be forgiven. I was good, but I knew I still needed to be forgiven. We need to step back, whether you're good or whether you were, you were way out there. Just to step back, God, you really, you did that for me. Here's another application. Surrender to a God that would do that for you. Just surrender your life to him. Because some of us, we accept him as savior and we say, thank you so much, God. If you want to give me advice along the way, that'd be helpful, but I'll just, I'll see you there. And we're not so much in the word, dependent on him. God, you gave me this life now. Make sure I don't, make sure I don't mess it up. That's what Romans 8 says when it looks at that. It looks to us now that we're not enemies of God anymore. It says, what do we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? 
That's important for that voice, that condemning voice that goes on in your head. If God's for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's given Jesus up for you. He's not going to short you now. So surrender your life to him. Let that be an application. God, I just want to give you my whole life. It's a struggle, but I want to give you my whole life. Here's another application. Rip the callus off your sin reflex because if you've been saved a long time, you know all of your sins have been forgiven and God, I'm sorry about that, but rip the callus off of that so that it bothers you to sin or so that you know what the cost of was forgiveness because we can easily just slide into it's no big deal, it's no big deal. And then just live your thanks, live your thanks. Let your life be your thank you to God and, and your gratitude to him. But the story isn't just about you. Watch this, watch this thread that goes through this. The angel comes and tells the shepherds. The shepherds, they go and check it out. And once they've checked it out, it says they tell Mary and Joseph and everyone else who was gathered there because it says they told everyone. Once they see it's true, they tell everyone. In verse 18, um, I'm sorry, in verse 17, when they had saw it, they made known the saying they had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at it. Shepherd, the angels tell them, they check it out, they tell everyone around them. And then it says in verse 20, they return glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen had been told them. There's this thread of telling people that goes through the first, goes through the first couple of days of Jesus' life. You have people that are telling people. And so Jesus comes and he shows up in his life and what's he doing? He's telling people. At his birth, the angels are telling them who Jesus is. Through his life, he's telling people who he is. At his death, he's telling us to go tell people who he is. So, so this message, you know, the outrageous message is that, we, is that we spend a life alienating God and that he came for us, but that it's not just about you. It's for you now to tell other people and, and not hold this thing just in yourself, to let people know they can be forgiven, that God wants to have a relationship with them, that it doesn't matter to God what's been done because it's all been paid for, it's all been covered. That when he went to shepherds, he was making a statement about he, he's including everybody, everybody in this. So tell people, that's what Jesus did, that's what Jesus did in the start. In the start, that's what his story ends up being. The beginning of the story is people telling people, angels telling people, and then people telling people. Interesting, there's, there's a couple of verses that that I, one verse I remembered in my Word of Life club as a teenager says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he that wins souls is wise. He that wins people to Jesus is just living a wise life. This week, I mentioned what I'm doing in my quiet time. So I finished the book of Daniel. I never noticed this verse in Daniel chapter 12. It says, those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. Those who lead many to righteousness, who just lead, lead along the way. You just speak into people what they're interested in hearing. I think I've mentioned, I know I've mentioned in the past, I have a friend, family member, a friend who uh, I always worry because I know, I know the messages go online. I'm hoping my brothers aren't listening. So somebody said to me one time, I either share the gospel with people till they get mad or they get saved. And just how I grew up, I always think, man, I'm almost, and I'm always the next person to talk to that guy, you know? 
who's mad and do this. You don't talk to people till they get mad or they get saved. You talk to people as long as they're interested. And then when the interest runs out, you just say you'd like to talk more. You'd like to talk again. You just, you feed a person's spiritual interest. You check to see if, if you can say the next thing. And if they're done, we should be done. We should be done. But we should make opportunity for the next thing. It's one reason it's, it's good to have things on hand to give people. Hey, it was a good talk. Let me give you this to read, and then we can talk, maybe we can talk about it. Or to say, hey, why don't you read it for yourself? That's one of the things I love about the gospel. You can just say to somebody, why don't you just read the gospel of John for yourself and let Jesus talk for himself? But just to do that with people, to tell people. So here's, here's another application you take away. God, you give me opportunity. I will tell people. I'll tell people what you've done for me. I'll tell people what you've come, why you've come. It's not easy to do. Hey, what are you doing for Christmas? What does your family do for Christmas? Do you guys go to church at all? Do you consider yourself a Christian? Those are very open questions. There's not a condemnation to them, but they're good ways to start so that this message keeps moving forward and you get an opportunity to glorify God by just saying what he's done for you. This outrageous, amazing thing that he's done for us. This message that, this outrageous message is that We've spent a life alienating God, and yet he came to save us. Boy, that's grace and love. So, Father, thank you so much for doing that. Uh, theology aside, there is no way we could have taken care of that stuff. There's no way, even in our own consciences, that we could have done enough things or promised enough things that would have made us feel like the way was cleared between you and us. So, Lord Jesus, we just worship you and love you this morning all over again for being willing to humble yourself, humiliate yourself, really, and come to earth like one of us and, and, and a baby and then live, live a life that's, that was just so innocent and pure and yet so risky and then to die a gruesome death so that all of our stuff could be forgiven. Your word's right when it says nobody else would do that for us. And it is outrageous to think that the God of heaven himself would do that for us. So thank you. And as, as Pastor, said, Pastor Ted said earlier, just I'll pause in a moment by praying. Boy, if you've, not, if you've not given your life to Jesus, if you've not asked him to save you, that's as simple as it is. You just come to God and acknowledge God there's so much that I've done wrong that you're going to judge. But if you're telling me that Jesus has paid for that already and that you'll forgive me if I just give myself to him, then I want to do that. That's the gospel. It's that simple. Cottage Hill Church, that's here for you after, but that's not part of being saved. It's just you and what Jesus Christ has done to meet your need. So would you do that today? And then would you tell somebody about it after? And would you, others of us, would you choose to just surrender your life and live as a follower of Jesus, a fully committed follower of Jesus? And others of us, would you commit to telling people this story? It's why we've been left here, to, to serve each other so that we will serve people that are outside. God, would you just allow your heart to just really come aflame in us 
so that it will matter to us as much as it matters to you. So grateful for those who shared the gospel with me and with us. Would you just help us to be as faithful so that we become part of other people's story? So there are great stories that continue to be written. Pray you be glorified in it because that's what we pray in your name. Amen.